Time for Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, good to be here. Interesting stories on the agenda today. We're going to get to the issue of impaired driving and the intersection with laws governing electronic devices as well as uh, the need for an interlock in one's car and how i don't even know if these if these different provisions are coherent reading what's <laughs> here we're going to be getting that in just a couple of minutes. it's going to be interesting where do we want to dive in uh, well why don't we start with the uh publication ban that's probably a interesting thing for some all right so what's a publication ban well there's a strong presumption in uh criminal and in fact other cases as well that the court process be an open one right you're free to wander up to the courthouse and watch what's going on and that's a good thing little, little good comes of secret tribunals and things happening behind closed doors however uh there is a uh, ever increasing uh list of reasons why various things are prohibited closed uh, behind closed doors they include things like desire to protect the identity of complainants in uh, sexual uh, offense cases, uh, desire to protect witnesses' identities, uh, uh, desires to ensure that a trial is going to be fair, all sorts of good reasons why these things are coming and uh, bans are made on publication of information or not letting people into the courtroom. And what just came out this week is an expansion of a uh, what's called a practice directive from the B.C. Supreme Court, sort of setting out how these things are to be handled. Uh, and it's a expansion of an existing policy, and it deals with how notice ought to be provided when there are going to be applications for these kind of uh, discretionary orders to keep things secret. Uh, and uh, the way this works uh, is that if somebody wants to make an application for a discretionary ban on publication or to exclude the public from a criminal or quasi-criminal sort of case, the, uh, there's a requirement now that there be notice in advance and that it be uh, that notice winds up getting published on a website which members of the media or others can subscribe to as an RSS feed. So the idea would be uh, that the media could subscribe to that to kind of keep an eye on who's applying for bans on publication and for what purpose and what's going on here. And I suppose in an appropriate case, if you looked at it and said, you know, oh my goodness, look at this public official or some uh, person where that might be relevant, the media could show up and make application to oppose that or get some access to it. So we could rely on the expectation of being notified instead of having to seek out the information every day to see if there's anything there. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I smile when you see at the courthouse uh, posted on uh, outside a courtroom uh, a notice about some form of ban on publication of the public being excluded. Sometimes I think of it as sort of like a big target somebody set up there. That otherwise, a proceeding which would generate absolutely no interest for anyone at any time, suddenly everyone's eyebrows would go up. Oh, what's over here, right? What's being kept secret? So yes. we've now got, uh, you know, the Internet's taking hold. That's going to be published in a, regulated or a regularized way. And then the other part of this is that uh, the website will have a list of all of the publication bans that are in place and why they're in place. And... The idea, of course, then would be for members of the media, before they're going to report something, you could go to this almost one-stop shop to see, hey, am I allowed to report this? Is there some ban on publication? Can I identify the complainant? There are various provisos, like it's not going to be immediate, right? Uh, but uh, that's the idea. So we've got this uh, website now, process to notify people, so you can find out whether there's a uh, 
ban application coming or what's currently in place so as not to be held in contempt. We have had some very close calls in terms of election races here in the Victoria area over the years, particularly the West Shore riding, which has changed names and was also redrawn relatively recently. But I remember once upon a time, the Conservative candidate and the Liberal candidate for a number of elections came within a shockingly small number of ballots from each other in terms of wins and losses. What is a judicial recount? And it's in the news this week, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, And it can arise in two circumstances, really. One would be an automatic judicial recount. uh, And an automatic judicial recount would be engaged uh, if at the conclusion of the counting of ballots, all of them, including like the mailed-in ones and people who voted in advance, this sort of thing, that the difference between... uh, the first and second place candidate is less than one vote in 1,000. So if it's that narrow, uh, the uh, provision is that there be an automatic judicial recount. If the gap is slightly larger than that, uh, there can still be a judicial recount upon application uh, by one of the persons who was standing for election, right? Uh, and in the election we just had, uh, there is a one of the writings, for example, up in the Yukon, uh, is very close. Um, it uh, looks like 164 votes spread, uh, and the number of votes for the Liberal and second-place Conservative candidate were 6,849 to 6,777. So close. That's clearly more than one in a thousand. Uh, but once the um, uh, there is a final certification of what that uh, result is. Uh, the candidate who lost, if they wished to, could go and make an dis- application for a discretionary judicial recount, and they'd have to point out why they say there might be a problem. Uh, and that takes us, of course, to, well, what on earth is a judicial recount? What does that look like, and what's going on? I, I, judicial, so I think something with courts and judges. Recount seems pretty apparent, so how does it work? Yeah. Um, I actually was uh, participated as counsel on that uh, one of the ones back in Victoria that you made reference to oh, back, at, back in 2008. Oh, it was a small a world. Interesting experience. Uh, that was a case where uh, the conservative uh, candidate uh, there, uh, Troy D'Souza, yes. uh, came out 68 votes behind uh, Dr. Keith Martin, who was the liberal candidate at the time. Yes. Uh, and that was slightly more than the one in a thousand. Uh, but Mr. D'Souza made an application for a judicial recount, uh, and that was ordered. Uh, and the process was an interesting one. Once that was engaged, uh, it involved a superior court uh, judge, uh-huh. uh, Judge Wilson, uh-huh. uh, Justice Wilson, and it took place at the Empress Hotel, and they uh, rented out a large uh, empty uh, room in the basement of it. Uh, and what occurred there was all of the uh, ballot boxes for the riding were brought in. Each one was set up at a separate table. Uh, and then they had representatives of each party scrutinizing the count. And you had a person doing the count and a person recording it. Uh, the judge would standing in the room uh, wearing a suit, not in robes. And then you would have counsel for each of the parties in the room. And what would occur is as the count was progressing, if there was a ballot that was in issue... Um, Like somebody said, for example, um, you know, it's unclear what the intentions of this voter were. Oh, like if it was marked off off center or something? Like if the X wasn't clear, something like that? It was incredible to see just the variation in human affairs. You would have things... I would love to have been a fly on the wall and see that. You you would look at it, you would think, okay, how hard can this be? You've got to put an X in a circle (laughs) next to the person you you want. And people would have things like, 
well, you've crossed out two people and you put an exclamation mark by one and you oh. underlined one with a tick mark. What was that? <laughs> right? Or, and, or, and the judge has yeah. to look at it and make a fine. So what would happen is you'd have the people doing the count and if a party took issue with it, like, you know, somebody pulled out one and it looked like that and there was a star and an exclamation point next to the candidate and... You know, the the uh, person counting said, yes, I think this is an indication for the one with the star underline and the little exclamation point. Um, then if somebody took issue with that, he would say, well, hold on. Lawyers for each of the candidates would go up and discuss it, look at the thing. And if we could agree, well, that was fine. We'd just carry on. If we couldn't agree, then we would call the judge over. The judge would come over. Each of us would make a submission to the judge. <laughs> Look, I don't know what this person means. There are two underlines. I don't know what the star means. You've crossed somebody out over here. And then the judge would make a determination, and he would say, yes, either count it or don't count it. And then in either case, it would get marked separately as an exhibit so that if there was ever to be, say, some appeal or review of it, that could be looked at. And so we carried on in that in that way for many hours. Uh, and there are, there are, there's that issue, which I've just identified, the issue of what did you really mean here by this particular yeah. pattern of markings. Is the it other, balance of probabilities between the two submissions, or, or how does it work? Well, the, the test for the judge is, is the voter's intention clear? Like, can you discern what did this person mean when okay. you circled the person and wrote yes, exclamation point, <laughs> having crossed out <laughs> two other people? Now, the other reason your ballot can wind up being... Uh, uh, not counted is if you make a mark on the ballot, and this is more subjective, that could identify the voter. And I think the history of that would be you don't want a circumstance where somebody either comes along and threatens you, right? You better vote for so and so, or I'm going to come and thump you or fire you or do something. And I'll know because you better write a small letter D with an asterisk in the ah. bright, bottom right hand corner. If I don't see that, I'll know you haven't done it. Interesting. Or I'll pay you. Uh, if you uh, and I'll know that you've done what you've, prom- you've promised because you'll write a smiley face in the top right. Yeah. So if you make a mark on your ballot that could be unique and identify you, that ballot doesn't count. So don't write your name on the ballot. Don't write, you know, Mulligan loves this guy. That's not going to get counted. That's, and so that's why we don't allow selfies with ballots either because right. it creates a record. Yeah. Yeah. And so that produced other interesting things because you could have a circumstance where. Look, it looks pretty clear that this person wants this person. They wrote it, they drew a smiley face in uh, next to them with some stars around it, right? That's, and that's the only thing you've marked on the ballot. You haven't touched anything else. Looks clear. This is the one you've picked. But is a smiley face with some stars around it? Is that the sort of unique identifying mark that might identify the voter? So don't write a smiley face in. Don't write your name on it. Don't put people would write numbers like some people thought, oh, I'll just write like one, two, three, or other people would like shade in a couple of ones and then put like a, it was an incredible uh, combination of effects. Anyways, we, we, we went at that for hours uh, and uh, eventually uh, it became clear to uh, Mr. D'Souza that the result wasn't going to change. So he quite appropriately said, look, I don't need to carry on with this. We've been at it. There isn't some uh, large variation in uh, outcome, but it was a genuinely interesting process, and again, an open one. You, people could see what's going on there, uh, and uh, I think a pretty impressive display of democracy. Right? You've got I am independent judge. It the was great. That yeah, you had. yeah, that's 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 really cool. I like that. I I, I didn't know you worked that case. That's yeah. small world. All right, well, I want to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment. Extradition. What does it mean to be extradited to another country? And also, drunk driving laws and punishments. Are they fully coherent when we consider prohibitions on the use of electronic devices? Interesting finding in BC's courts. Michael Mulligan will help us understand it right after this.
When news breaks, Victoria counts on CFAX 1070. Projecting a likely liberal minority government at this point. And they voted in favor of a progressive agenda and strong action on climate change. Third and humbled by the support from this community and the trust that they put in me. We can make a really significant contribution in a minority parliament and we will. If it's happening, it's here. CFAX 1070. What's the best thing about Sunwing's Epic Sale? Saving epic amounts on winter vacation packages or saving epic amounts on Ixtapa Zihuantanejo vacation packages? It's both. Vacation better at top-rated resorts with Sunwing's award-winning service. Get an epic move on and don't miss epic savings to Ixtapa Zihuantanejo. One trip, two paradises in Mexico. Book with your travel agent or at... You Move Me is a whole new way to move your household or your business effortlessly. Friendly, full-service movers wearing cool uniforms. They look like superheroes. Always on time. Always careful. Always courteous. And our upfront pricing means no surprises. Except at the end where we give you a little housewarming gift. But now that you've told them, it won't be a surprise. You Move Me. No worries. You're going to like what you see. YouMoveMe.com Investing doesn't need to be scary, even if Halloween is approaching. Here's Robin Muir from Hatch & Muir. On October 30th, we have David Atkins, Portfolio Manager of the Value Partners Canadian Equity Pool, in town at the Grand Pacific Hotel. If you have a portfolio greater than $500,000, this session is for you. There's never been a better time to get some clarity on your investments. Along with the complimentary lunch, this informative session is sure to put your fears to rest. Register today by calling Hatch & Muir at 250-953-6816. Hi, I saw your Tiguan offer last week and got so excited. Is it still on? You're in luck. Get up to $2,500 cash purchase bonus or 0% financing for 72 months on other select trims. Plus $1,000 credit on a new 2019 Tiguan during our 10-day only sale. Nice. There's even 0% financing for 60 months on select certified pre-owned diesels. Are you kidding me? Oh, I did it again. We don't blame you for getting excited. Ends October 31st. Visit a Volkswagen dealer for details. Volkswagen. Living with hearing loss is like only listening to half the orchestra. Whether you suffer from hearing loss or just notice a lack of clarity, Broadmead and Oak Bay Hearing Clinics will improve your hearing and your quality of life. So try a pair for three months. Use our trial period to see if the latest in hearing technology makes a difference for you. It's one of the qualities that makes Broadmead and Oak Bay Hearing Clinics unique. Call 250-479-2969 or visit broadmeadhearing.com to book an appointment. All rise. Court is now in session. The judicial system. Think it's balanced? Think again. I've been in court before. I know how this works. You think you know, but you don't. Not yet. Monday on CTV. Go out there and kill it. Your Honor. A new judge who wants to shake up the system. His voice matters. It's important. And bring down. Objection. Sustained. The hammer. In my chambers now. Get into All Rise. All new. Monday at 9. Only on CTV. Stopped on Souk Road? We'll get you back on track. If it's happening, it's here. CFAX 1070. 
keeping you informed. Adam Sterling on CFAX 1070. Legally Speaking continues with Michael Mulligan, counsel with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Extradition, what does it mean for one to be extradited to another country, Michael? Well, uh, the way extradition works is it involves a, a request from the country that wants you to put you on trial, right? So Canada would have extradition treaties with a number of countries, including countries like the U.S., right? And so if the United States wants to put somebody on trial and they're in Canada, uh, they can make a request to Canada to have that person extradited or sent back to stand trial in the U.S. We're seeing that, of course, right at the moment with that high-profile case of... Yep. Yeah, that's yep. right. Um, uh, and there was another uh, decision this week that dealt with a less high-profile case, but... I think it's useful because it uh, sort of sets out what the judge is charged with doing and what the threshold is to get shipped off somewhere to stand trial. Uh, this particular case involved uh, a person who was alleged to have engaged in um, securities fraud. Essentially, it's an uh, uh, allegation that this uh, fund was uh, trading in penny stocks uh, and doing things to manipulate them by buying and selling them, I think, internally to make them look like they're going up in price, the markets being so thin for these um, stocks that a uh, few transactions at uh, pretty low value is going to cause it to look like, hey, look, this uh, you know gold mining company looks like it's going great. Every day it goes up by 2%. That's been happening for months. It must be great uh, when there are very few stocks traded. Virtually all of them might be some manipulation. Mm. I must say my cynical view is that seems to be, I, I would have just sort of predicted that that was the cornerstone of uh, stock trading in uh, Vancouver. <laughs> <laughs> but I would have just sort of start with the proposition that probably that's what's going on and until there's some compelling evidence to the contrary. <laughs> that's the reverse Otis. Yeah, yes. you should just sort of presume that your penny mining stock is being manipulated by somebody. <laughs> Uh, so anyways, this was some fellow who uh, was uh, allegedly involved in this scheme um, and uh, the uh, or a scheme like that dealing mm -hmm. with penny stocks. Uh, and so they were seeking the U.S. was seeking his extradition. Uh, and there is a judicial part of the extradition process, uh, which is just sort of getting underway in the uh, Huawei case. Um, and the this case sort of makes clear what the threshold is to get extradited from a judicial perspective, right? The the judge who's hearing an extradition uh, request um, is not deciding is that person guilty or even are they probably guilty. The the threshold uh, that a judge is required to apply um, is the same threshold that would apply at a preliminary inquiry in Canada, and that threshold is expressed as could a properly instructed jury convict on the evidence? It's essentially, is it possible, not is it likely or... Or reasonably be, likely, it's just reasonably possible. Likely. Yeah, could they? I mean, there is that language about properly instructed, okay, right? Fair. So it can't be just the total realm of speculation. But okay. you don't avoid extradition by saying, hey, look, there's a pretty clear defense over here, or, hey, look, that person looks like uh, they'd be a pretty incredible witness. They've got all kinds of problems. Uh, and uh, this case made clear that the judge said, look, the threshold here is just could a properly instructed jury convict. I appreciate you may have all various defenses to this. Uh, I think this was the uh, person's defense was the, hey, I didn't know what the uh, fraud was. I was just uh, carrying out instructions. Uh, 
you know, I just uh, I just worked at the uh, torture chamber or whatever it might be, right? Um, so, and then it's or are they credible? And it was it was it reasonable or unreasonable? Yeah. Like there, I always find with legal tests is that it's always made up of smaller legal tests, which right. in turn are also made up of smaller legal tests. I'm always like, when do we actually hit bedrock and it's just ordinary words that mean things? Yeah, I don't never don't, don't worry, it's elephants all the way down. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, the. Uh, <laughs> So uh, the judge here is required to order extradition, saying, look, a properly instructed jury could convict on this evidence, even if there is some apparent defense to it. Um, And then when that uh, judge makes that finding, it doesn't mean the person's automatically whisked away to the other country. Uh, There is then a discretionary decision, right, for sort of the minister to make about, are you going to, in fact, send the person back? Uh, Which is going to be, I think, really the interesting decision in the Huawei case, right? Because there's just a judgment call. What do you want to do here? Um, the the other thing I think which this sort of brings into sharp relief is all the uh, the uh, protests going on in Hong Kong at the yes, moment. Yes, um, and uh, that uh, started, of course, with a proposal to uh, allow extradition from Hong Kong to mainland China. Uh, that, of course, has expanded much beyond uh, that particular issue, uh, but the uh, this case and that test, I think, also make clear why you don't want to enter into an extradition treaty with a country that you don't have a very high degree of confidence in terms of the proper functioning of their uh, justice system, uh, lest you find yourself whisked away to uh, stand trial in some place like uh, China, uh, where you probably would not have a high expectation that's going to look like a fair and reasonable process. So, yeah, because by extension, it would make our justice system as unjust, you know, jointly as any other system to which we extradited people. That's right. Now, I mean, there are some concepts like dual criminality, uh, where um, you would not be extradited unless what you're alleged to have done is an offense both here and in the other place. Okay. So, for example. Uh, you know, let's say it's an offense in, uh, I don't know, Alabama to uh, engage in blasphemy. Well, you're not going to get extradited back to Alabama to face your blasphemy charge because that's just not going to be an offense uh, here. Um, assuming, of course, we got that criminal code I was just going to say, it's yeah. section 296, I yeah. think. I can't remember if they've taken it out yet. Yeah. Blasphemous libel. I, that's right. I, I haven't checked that in a while. Oh, oh, hopefully we got that out of there along with witchcraft and pretending to tell fortunes. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was a... <laughs> Up until these very recently, both laws. they're yep. still there, okay. or they were there until recently. So uh, there it is. Extradition is just, could a jury convict? All right. We uh, spent a substantial portion of the program earlier talking about drunk driving. It came up that laws have recently been changed to increase the investigative powers of police officers at the roadside. Also, this coincides with uh, toughened laws recently around the use of electronic devices. You and I have talked at great length about how the courts are still interpreting what the use of an electronic device actually means. Is it being held in a way in which it may be used? Or what does electronic device even mean? The presumption is often that it's a phone or a communications device or something that would distract the driver. Not always the case. What happened in this in this next story? Yeah, that's, uh, I think, a real issue. And I, I think our legislation in B.C. that deals with the prohibition on the use of electronic devices may well require a little bit of a revision or, or reconsideration It was clearly drafted in a way to be extremely broad, to capture all sorts of different things, probably bearing in mind things like, 
you know, technological changes and so on, right? You wouldn't want to be too restrictive, uh, you know, when it turns out everyone is suddenly talking on their electronic pen or their <laughs> exactly. whatever else, right? <laughs> the, the companies would yeah. manufacture things to avoid the law. And I can, is I that can a coffee that. cup, sir? No, it seems to have a screen <laughs> and a microphone on the top of it. Yeah. Uh, so it's really broad, the, the language, uh, and, you know, like so many areas of the law, if there's generally good discretion exercise, problems don't arise, but that's not, of course, always the case once you wind up with a very large population of people making decisions. So the particular case that came out this week highlighted one of the potential issues that is still going to be a live issue, and, and it relates both to distracted driving and impaired driving. Uh, and the reason this is still an unresolved issue is this. Uh, in BC, if somebody is convicted of impaired driving, uh, or even if they're not convicted, even if they wind up with uh, sort of alcohol-related entries on their motor vehicle record as a result of uh, results on screening devices or otherwise, those aren't really convictions of any kind, mm. uh, there can be a requirement placed on somebody that they install what's called an interlock device in their car. Uh, and an interlock device is uh, essentially what people would call a breathalyzer that's hooked up to the ignition system. Um, and the idea is that uh, you would uh, have to have one of these things installed and you would need to blow into it before you start driving. And if you uh, detect alcohol, well, the car won't start. Uh, and then I suppose to deal with the uh, possibility that uh, if uh, with that victory you suddenly pull out your bottle of vodka and head out to the ferry... Uh, you would be required to periodically blow into it as you're driving uh, in order to establish you're still sober and haven't started drinking after you got your car running. Right? I didn't know that you had to periodically use yes. them. I had no idea until reviewing this case. And if you don't do it, it's on pain of the horn honking, the lights flashing on and off. So there's a powerful incentive to blow into this thing, right? Uh, and uh, so this case involved the intersection of that law, uh, and this fellow uh, involved in this case was required to have one of these things in his car. And then what happened is a police officer standing behind a fence some distance away when this guy was driving said, hey, I think you were using your phone over there, uh, touching it or tapping it. And so he got charged with using an electronic device. At his traffic court trial, uh, his defense was, well, no, no, I, I wasn't touching my phone. I was tapping on my interlock device which looks like the a square thing kind of looks like a phone it's connected by a, a cable that goes under the dash probably looks a whole lot like a a phone plugged into your uh you know, cigarette lighter or something right yeah, yeah. uh and the uh, original judge the judicial justice sitting in the traffic court uh made comments that suggested that first of all he didn't believe this guy but uh, then second of all even if he did believe the guy that thing would still be an electronic device so he'd still be guilty because he was tapping on or holding this, using an electronic device to it, the interlock device, which he was required to have in his car and required to blow into. That, that's obviously a problem. So if it was mounted to the dashboard, would it be? Ah. Oh, yeah, well, it's got to be affixed, securely yes. fixed to the vehicle. And uh, I think part of the problem there is that uh, plugging your cell phone in to the uh, cigarette lighter, for example, doesn't constitute being securely fixed to the vehicle. Otherwise, you could be texting away and updating your Facebook profile as long as you plugged your phone in. That doesn't get you there. So uh, he appealed. Uh, and so it looked like maybe there'll be some clarification of, is an interlock device an electronic device? And if so, does tapping it constitute a, a offense? That would be a pretty clear problem. Uh, however, uh, the uh, Supreme Court judge uh, dealing with that appeal ultimately concluded that because the 
the judicial justice, the original huh. judge, didn't believe this guy's evidence that he was tapping on his interlock device and not his cell phone. Uh, that the uh, original judge's comments about the interlock device were what are called obiter in the decision, just sort of a by-the-by comment that didn't really determine the case. And so for that reason, uh, the judge on the appeal did not need to address the issue of whether an interlock device constitutes an electronic device, but that issue sure hasn't gone away. Yeah, uh, and I, I must say, if somebody asked me for an opinion looking at the definition of electronic device and what an interlock device is, um, I would be pretty slow to give somebody the advice, uh, don't worry about it, you'll be fine. So, again, I think this is another reason why the government should perhaps look at the use of electronic device provisions again to make yeah. sure that we are capturing what we mean to capture and not capturing various people in scenarios we just never envisioned. That's all the time we have for now. Michael Mulligan, thank you so much. Michael Mulligan, every week here on CFAX 1070 from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. The news is next.